I asked my daughter, when are you going to clean your room? And she says, Saturday or Sunday, whichever comes first. I said, so Saturday then? You're listening to that blessed and highly flavored podcast. It's only because a nigga blessed. Welcome back to Black Oak Couch Reviews. I'm your host, Christina. We are back for another episode, the penultimate episode of season two of The Leftovers, entitled 1013. This episode was, of course, written by Damon Lindelof and Monica Boletsky, who worked on Fargo and I Am the Night, and directed by Keith Gordon, who worked on a ton of shit, including Legion and Better Call Saul. This episode premiered November 29th of 2015, and of course, I gave this one a 10 out of 10. Come on. We finally got Liv Tyler's character, such a huge name, such a legend, and yet she's had a rather, you know, background characterization in the sphere of the show. And this episode puts Megan front and center stage and she she steals it. Definitely probably one of the most terrifying characters in the series. And I still like her better than fucking Matt. I don't know what that says about me, but I'm sure <laughs> a few people are judging and making assessments. I'm not sure that I said it before, but because it assaulted my ears, because HBO does not allow a skip intro option, I'm going to say it again. I do not like that intro. So I was rather happily surprised that we transitioned directly into some new dance music while Megan is sniffing some cocaine and telling herself to smile in the mirror. I'm in love with the coco. I'm in love with the coco. I got it for the lolo. I'm in love with the coco. At first, I thought this was the present because I swore I saw her with white on, which I don't think she did. But I was focused so much on her face and dancing to the music. What was that song called? White Lines? that I completely missed. Holy shit, this is a flashback. Mom and daughter are having lunch and it's one of those lunches in which there is so much tension and the way they both fight for control, it is a little insane. They are both fighting for control. There's a, a, a dominance or submissive dominant kind of I don't know there's just a lot here like I said I could not completely unravel but I know they're giving waitresses a really bad name leftovers you had it in episode two or one with John where he was like I said bacon on the side and she fucked up and in this episode she's like I said no walnuts and then you know she one of those um women She's like, she needs to validate. I'm not being a bitch. I did say no walnuts, right? Like, you heard me say that. Like, I'm not just being crazy. I'm not making a mistake, right? It's not on me to make her go back in the kitchen and do her job. And it's not. To be fair, it is not. But come on now. Can we not show a server getting the order right? 
I cannot remember the mom's name. I think I wrote it in my notes somewhere, but she says that Meg is relentless because they are arguing back and forth on who is going to pay for her wedding. Mom wants to pay for it. Daughter does not want to pay for it or want her to do that. And she says she is relentless the most when she has a cause. Pow, right in the kisha. Pow, right in the kisha. Now that's one of those lines that are a little too on the nose and they were, or there were a few of those in this episode, but I did not mind as much because the performances really elevated it. And after they go back and forth a little bit more, she points out that I did treat you to a pair of boots. And she said, well, I left my wallet that day. She says, well, that was six months ago and you never paid me back. And you said you would. And this causes Meg to take out her checkbook and insist on paying her back for those boots. And mother accepts this because it feels as if Megan does not want to be in mama's debt. And it feels as if mom is like, yeah, you should never be in anyone's debt. I feel like there is such a teaching and learning moment there. And then she says, well, there's something I really need to tell you. But Megan says, I need to go back to the bathroom and sniff some more Coke because that's what it takes to be in the round with you. Or is that supposed to also be an addictive feeling of in a rush of going back and forth or toe to toe with her mother? Also, when she writes the check, she says date it for October 14th because October 13th today is considered unlucky. So it's interesting that she is just as superstitious as some of the people in Miracle that they come across later on or that Megan comes across. I like the fact that very few people call her Meg. They call her Megan. And I think that may be because of her mother. I'm not sure. She smiles in the mirror once again and says that's better. I'm not an expert in cocaine or any drugs but it feels like she took an excessive amount just saying but when she leaves the restroom her mother is on the floor dead being given cpr look at this look 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 am i to believe that brent reznor is responsible for the music because it is done very well, particularly in this episode. And it even got me to like a country song. And y'all know how I feel about that. Just a great rendition of Waiting in the Water. Transition to a bus. There's a lot of very Christian folks <laughs> singing Waiting in the Water. Heading into Miracle. Except this is also a flashback into Meg's past. As she is with her then fiancé. Darren, who is looking sexy as hell. Talk dirty to me. But seriously, was he that fine in season one? Because I don't recall him being that damn dreamy. I was like, girl, what is your problem is? And there is a thing such as unconscious biases. And I noticed in this show that all of the drop dead gorgeous men happen to be married to the same archetype of woman 
notice the trend, Lori and Kevin, you know, then you have uh, Darren and Meg, even to a certain extent, Regina King's character, Erica and John. Everyone has this perceived perfect family, perfect life or, or ideal situation going on that any woman would be happy to have. I think there's something to be said about that too, even in real life. Because we be sometimes petty on the sidelines when you a good ass woman and you be seeing these straight up biatches be getting very good men and they're submissive to them to the point where they get taken advantage of and they're just like, I love you and I'm forgiving everything and no matter what and yeah. And they usually typically look like the archetype that they're portraying in this show through all of these women and I just kind of find that fascinating and like I said I think an unconscious bias on the part of possibly the casting director or who knows because uh, sometimes you put out for you know certain characters are put out for a look so yeah um just something I, I paid attention to but it turns out that Miracle has been only open for a few months and the park rangers are dicks completely at this point because they're making jokes about the fact that they're going to hunt them down and like we know years later they're like yeah I have a shotgun don't fucking try it. You will not like the outcome of that situation. We hear a few things on the audio tour, which is what people are doing in the golf cart. So I like that they gave us a little bit more of that uh, world building of what is Miracle and Jarden. Because I've been fucking it up all season. Miracle is the park that surrounds the town of Jarden. Jarden is the properties that are inside the town, the families that live there. The 2000 whatever and something number even though that park did not look like as if it was and I bet you it's cut off to certain sections though because we didn't never see anyone going through like Evie's neighborhood right I bet you certain places you can't go but the town is actually Jarden so that is finally clarified for me in my head because apparently I needed it to be the crack in the street they learned was from a quake that occurred on October 14th that caused a gas explosion that blew all of the manholes and caused the crack in the ground and that the town had chose to preserve the site instead of uh, fix it. So the town in itself is born of or breeding superstition and that i mean it's kind of like it's its own bethlehem right it, it's this holy place that everyone's going oh that actually makes a whole lot of sense because a lot of people are making their pilgrimages there to somehow be touched by this holy place and now that we know for certain there's no second departure that's going to if anything further cement that idealism that this place is indeed completely enchanted or free or safe from a possible second departure since no one is affected the first time. I also like the fact that they give the sites numbers 
they're not too impressed with site uh, number 13, which is Celia, who wasn't going to wear her wedding dress on October the 14th. But after the departure, decided, you know, because she it was not her style. So she decided to go ahead and buy it anyway and wears it for a few hours a day. I'm ready for you now, Brad. Isn't it obvious? I'm so ready. No one is more <laughs> unimpressed than Meg and her husband as they drive away. She's like, you want a picture with me? No, bitch, I don't want a picture with you. You sound like a, um, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to insult my own <laughs> generation. I was going to say a millennial, but I was like, no, what's the other one? Generation X, kid. <laughs> she then stops in front of what was Isaac's house. Except there's no long lines out his door yet because he is just up and running, having discovered he has powers. Now that we, or this show, has delved into the official supernatural, it makes you go back and wonder and question the possibility, now that we know it is possible, that what Isaac was doing was not complete bullshit, no wonder, no matter how silly it did indeed seem and i like the fact that what he thought is silly compared to what he actually did i i think that's very interesting and telling but she hadn't told her fiance that this was why they came here that she wanted to get help from this guy that this place was special and lovely Darren's like, yeah, you know, whatever makes you feel better, get, get what you need. I don't care if it costs us our money. <laughs> but apparently it feels as if the parents or her mom at least was very well off. I think there's a certain independence too about the women because of what her backstory is. When you take that into consideration that they never had a significant other in which they could rely on. So there is a hard one independent streak that kind of uh puts a barrier up i feel like it didn't hurt her at all to cut darren loose it hurt darren and i think that was on purpose and then she goes in and meets isaac and he's cordial and she clearly wants to contact her mother and she says that she lost her on october 13th and how people tell her she's lucky and he reads it immediately like, no, you're not lucky to lose your mother and nobody care about her or your pain because the world has suffered a much larger loss that, in, that makes yours insignificant. And that's something she just cannot live with, I guess, in a way. But I love how he also reads that it ain't just that simple. But he explains that the handprint is only for future shit. And he's like, nah, you don't want that. And the way he even said it, it was, I don't know. There was something to the way he delivered that line. He is mixing something in a bowl, like a spice bowl, and says, now I need you to chew this, but not swallow it. And she's like, oh, that's it? Because she thought he would need something from her mom. And I did laugh when she pulled 
that sweater from her purse and she's like i brought her sweater and he was like you chilly that's white people uh, shit man sidebar interesting is the black people in this show that can seemingly know or have knowledge of doing supernatural shit i don't know if that's on purpose is that a tie to voodoo because there is some idea that voodoo brought but nah, I, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that shit. Cause it's we, we live on a Native American burial field. So if we fucking curse, that's where it come from. Shit, <laughs> we is the second generation curse. <laughs> it was not the first. That is a much bloodier, uh, much uh, genocidal type of uh, situation there. But I like how you can already tell that Isaac is different because everyone else had asked for something of hers. And he's like, yeah, I don't need something of hers. I need something of yours. So then she spits it into his hand. He rubs it and he's like, well, what do you want to know? She says, I want to know the last thing my mother was going to tell me at the dinner table. Well, she actually doesn't say that. Just the last thing she was going to tell me before she died that she said I really needed to know and he says look some people when they're gonna die they know they're gonna die their last words are poetic they're carefully worded they're profound but people who don't know that they're gonna die they may say some fucked up shit and you know whatever I tell you you're gonna just be disappointed in and it's not gonna fix what's already broken inside of you which likely your mother damaged a long time ago herself she says that's bullshit you just don't want to tell me because it's not going to be anything that i want you're setting me up for failure but then he lays out some facts that only someone who would be there in the room would know which is the fact that she said she did not want walnuts and was very polite to the waitress when she told her so Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. She knows immediately he is not full of shit and says, tell me. And I just knew, I just knew we were not going to find out what the words were. She comes out smiling at Darren, saying he wasn't the real deal. Then sits on a bench at a church and cries into her mother's sweater and meets a much nerdier awkward Evie who notices her crying and offers her baby carrots because that's supposed to help the crying but it's not helping even though she keeps eating them and Evie sits down next to her and said I will tell I would tell you a joke but I don't know any jokes and I was like wow what kind of life I mean if you look at Michael I could see Evie very much living in his shadow and following along in his grace but not necessarily having her identity there like that's not who she is and we clearly see a much evolved um Evie later and I think it starts here once she meets someone who is in as much pain as she is and like I said in the previous podcast uh, or the second previous podcast I still believe and firmly stand on the side that it was Evie and her mother that Virgil molested so Meg tells her her first joke which is the joke we saw her tell her dad which is knock knock who's there 
pencil, pencil who, never mind, because what's the point, or something to that effect. <laughs> and you can see that there is almost a mother-daughter dichotomy shifted, and you see the lore there. Definitely depressive, um, Evie, as she gets up and says, you know, I'm sorry that you didn't find what you were looking for. No one ever does uh, find what they're looking for here. There's dark, ominous music playing as it feels as if there's a shift like this also happened to cause a transition in Meg as Evie walks away. And then she doesn't even, you know, she's just a girl to Darren. They get back on the bus. We're waiting in the water. It's starting up again, you know, but uh, before Megan leaves, and I'm not sure why, and I really am so excited to listen to other podcasts, <laughs> uh, take uh, their take on why she spit on the ground. Because I cannot, other than to say this place is cursed or I don't, there's a lot of reasons you can spit on the ground and I can't find anything that, because there's a resentment she has for this place. But it, it's a resentment because it told her the truth. I, I'm not sure with Meg and Miracle, but it definitely becomes the center of her rage. The return of the way to the water, like I stated, was really good. The seeds have definitely festered. I love the following shot of the bus from the front window perspective as it's moving through town. It crosses the street right into a group of GR members and Meg steps aside in her flowing white gown. So she is a part of, but also not a part of GR. Uh, she is now their leader of the sect that Lori abandoned. So see what you did in that power vacuum, Lori? <laughs> Look what you created. To hijack said busman, and I did not notice that there were little children on this bus, so when she gets on the bus and releases that fucking grenade and locks the children in said bus. Hey, bro. What? Oh, my God. Oh, that's twisted. That is some seriously twisted shit right there. And then you had that moment because I don't know what's a fake grenade. It looks like it's a real grenade. So you're waiting and the children are panicking even more as they're pushing against. You can hear them sobbing. And then they have the camera angle where you're also watching Meg's face as she smiles. But you're also waiting for the fucking bus to explode and the worst that happens and she just keeps smiling. I told you that bitch crazy. I think that completely capitulates what this character is about. She is about the horror. She is about rage. She is about anger. She wants her pain to be respected and she wants her pain to be felt by everyone that she encounters. And she is ready to give that in spades. Later, she takes a key and lets herself into an abandoned big ass mansion house where three GR leaders await. And I was like, what is that actress's name? I see her and everything. She was an American horror story. I put in my notes to Dina Howard and I feel like that is totally wrong. <laughs> 
Meg sits down. She's openly defiant. She's talking. She doesn't, you know, she's like, let's just have a conversation. And, uh, and the, I'm just going to say the black one because that's how I can differentiate it. They didn't give her a name, I don't believe. But she takes the lead saying, you know, okay, I'll talk to you at your level. And wants to know what the fuck was up with the school bus incident. And she says, what? I thought it was appropriate to take that action. And they say, no, it is not okay to take that action. She says, well, no one got hurt. So that officially made my heart feel a little bit better. And that people are forgetting. So she did this as a way to get people to remember and that we need to do something a little bit more extreme to step it the fuck up. We also learned that GR do not allow children into the group and into the homes, apparently despite membership apps. And then when you get to the end of the episode, it makes all of the sense of why this was put here. What Megan is doing, what she's doing with these girls is not even sanctioned by the people in which she is representing. So there is now a terrorist side of the GR and Meg is at the forefront of that. And I just, I mean, I really wanted to hit the next episode so freaking bad because then I almost completely forgot the, the batshit craziness of the fact that Kevin climbed out of a fucking grave last week or last episode because this one had me so engrossed i didn't even care because usually you get a cliffhanger like that and you're like oh i need to know what happened oh no i'll be giving the episode away from that that's some bullshit but this episode i it didn't even cross my mind until the end of the episode i was like oh fuck kevin just came out of a grave (laughs) what is the time span here this feels very much like it is going to be a very bad day for <laughs> the fourth anniversary of the departure. Is it the third or fourth? Apparently, the authorities also would very much overreact to the fact that their children would get involved in this or that children would even be in the homes with their, like, Cause you had the Lori situation, right? I wonder if that was like, yeah, this is why we don't let people's kids in here. Cause then, you know, people get fucking emotional. <laughs> and then they start an anti-GR group and try to steal our members away. Gladys um, was stoned to death cause she brings that up. I, for some reason, forgot to fully put that in my mind that Gladys gave consent for the GR people to stone her to death when Patty said it last season. I will also say I understand the GR much better this episode than I did all season one. Or I should say this season than I did all season one. Even though Patty gave me a good breakdown in her last episode, I still was like, eh, so, you know, why this again? (laughs) But, um... There is the fact that Gladys was stoned and that she ultimately revoked her consent. She says, no, I don't want to do it. And they did it anyway. I wonder if that's just a natural reaction that they're like, yeah, of course, I'm going to be feeling an extensive amount of pain. I'm going to say stop. But if I do just ignore that, like that's 
known up front or once you're set to be stoned that's it there's no turning back now meg has been with the dr a year at this point um and is telling the superiors you know we need to get a little bit more violent i need to take the cigarette put it in somebody's eye and also um it's not weak it's strength and i need to lean on that strength i love the close-up shots it feels very being brought before the board for interrogation and they tell her that hey we heard that you are trying to plan your own anniversary reminder which is unsanctioned because you and your crew are to report to Dobbs Ferry and carry out action there she's like of course that's what the plan is what do you mean like <laughs> I loved Megan the scene because she's just being so blatantly defiant but she's putting on this polite mask they also said that you know we also uh, mentioned something about the dogs like you were supposed to we, we excuse that incident what the fuck did she do to the dogs did she kill all the dogs in the neighborhood and when she says of course my team will go down to Dobbs Ferry she goes mm-hmm and she says, I need to hear you say it. You can count on me. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster-ass nigga plays his cards right. A real gangster-ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth because real gangster-ass niggas don't start fights. The black woman is not uh, buying that bullshit because she says not only that, I also heard that you are contacting other heads of houses, buying plastic explosives, that's ridiculous it is ridiculous megan so is the fact that the last time we asked you to handle something he now has turned himself named tom into a hugging messiah to lure more gr people away and that's a result at least she believes or they believe of her sexual and physical assault i'm sure they don't know about the sexual part but they definitely know about the physical. Megan then shows up at one of Tom's seminars during a hug, says, I can do this for you for real. He is still working with Lori at this time because Lori shows up to yell at him about the fact that it's night now and he ditched another gig where people were waiting. She had to give back donations. She doesn't like not getting money because money is what's going to get them a permanent space so that they can build their own little church because everybody seems to be intent on finding something to resemble faith that they can call their own and have some uh, type of what security in it's uh kind of kind of crazy kind of a loco but she is all about marketing and renting is expensive as fuck so they need to get somewhere permanent he is not into it and realizes this whole wayne scheme was your way of wait he really dug into her so i really want to get that part right because i didn't realize i thought for some reason that this whole idea was tom's no she had been prepping him the whole fucking time even when he was drinking watching those youtube videos that was her giving him homework 
and why she wasn't looking at it all types of weird man i missed that completely Lori's a piece of shit <laughs> she is full-on a nutcase um but i think she also has leaned into that a little bit with myth which may be why she's more tolerable for some reason but he lays it all out there you pimped out your fucking son to help you pay penance you're not helping people we're not helping people you're not doing shit and you were hitting people with your car and this is to basically atone for that and it's all to really cover up your original sin which is leaving your entire family she slaps the living shit out of him and says she's sorry but he leaves and that's the thing he lashes out as soon as she prods what's wrong and this is not the first time she's asked something's up you feel even more off than the scheming that we're doing this feels like wrong wrong and of course both times she asked it was connected to meg and she didn't figure this part out i wonder if she someone slipped a note to her and was like oh by the way your son is or was attacked by meg he then wakes on a park bench takes the rest of the liquor that he's drinking and puts it down his throat he watches a woman abandon her dog who's whining it's a way bit on the nose here <laughs> just a woman randomly stops on this day that he happens to be on this park bench to say hey fido i don't want you anymore i just don't want this attachment and for some reason four years later i decided today's the day when we need to have tom feel or show that time feels like abandoned fucking dog has no home has no owner can't get no love he then crashes the gr pad completely completely toasted demands to be brought to meg tells the one chick to to do her whistle now there are really valid reasons i will say because i really need to put this out here because it was conflicting for me right this whole entire little mini arc we had with tom and meg now because of the character work they've done since season one tom seeking out an attachment to his abuser is such ingrained behavior he feels unworthy he feels unloved he feels rejected so of course he's going to find people who don't support him he he wants to feel in the and he even says it in this episode if i wanted a family i'd go to fucking texas where my family is that will love me and accept me. like that's not what i want i want to be in this place but i also want to not feel this pain because he eventually gets meg there however if this were a woman this storyline going down would have people up in arms and the fact that that is there kind of puts the the aspect of tommy being molested in a in a slightly lesser category degree of degrading behavior especially when you have tommy giving hard eyes 
to her like they somehow had sex and the way he even says it all episode you fucked me as if it wasn't and i put it in my notes well you molested me and maybe he's just having a hard time where he's trying to reconcile those two things by twisting it in his head making it believe it was something it wasn't and then i do appreciate uh meg shattering that delusion immediately like oh okay i'm gonna play with you for a little while because it's fun to play with you but in the end no (laughs) i'm not your mother i don't want to be your mother i don't have fucking interest in you you're nothing you're looking for something i ain't it however like i stated earlier it needs to be acknowledged that this with a female character would have been just disgusting and filthy to watch in a way that wasn't with tommy and megan and that is because he's a male and that you know that's just the the fucked up way our brains process things but it should be understood at least that he is suffering in the same way a female would he's got stockholm syndrome in a lot of ways and like i said if this was not such a pattern of behavior i would not uh i would have much harder issue with it but he did the same thing with wayne like he barely wayne was a child molester (laughs) i mean and he killed a man for this guy he he took a a little girl in all reality tommy's not a fucking child he's a grown-ass man and (laughs) he had this little teenage 15 year little girl asian girl running around with her across the country you know he's busy putting himself in illegal criminal situations he's a hot ass fucking mess and then as soon as that abuser is gone from his life and he's, he's and it took everything right beyond the point of you know this is bullshit and you still are sticking to this belief um it took absolutely being shown how big the con was for him to let go of wayne and then his mother then stood in the role of abuser and that's really fucked up but now he is shifting that to the next woman that's come along and put him in a more negative spot and he's trying to catch on or latch on to her so it patterns out to make sense Tommy asks that he have his pain taken away. When she asks, what do you want? She pulls up a chair and it's like, if you want your pain taken away, why don't you just hug yourself? (laughs) Which is all types of a petty lie. He pleads in the most diarrhea of the mouth moment that would have played much better if he were still drunk or intoxicated in some way and decides to tell Meg that Hey, if I were in a family, I would have moved to Texas because that's where they moved. You know, my mom and my sister. He didn't even say stepmom. He just said my mom, right? Um, so how did he know that Lori went to Texas? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure when these conversations were happening, but he immediately says, yeah, they're there. And she says to, well, he says miracle. And then she says, Jarden and starts saying the the audio playback which i thought was a nice touch then this tickles the shit out of her because meg also happens to be heading there and then we get that funky 
White Lines music coming back in, which was just an extra nice touch to show the rush of dopamine she feels. And Tommy apparently is allowed to ride with her since they're going in the same direction. And apparently this is her burden to bear for the moment. They're driving at night. She gets a call. Her cell phone is in the glove uh, compartment. And after some very mysterious words back and forth, she says, you're wondering what I'm going to do and that it's going to be fucking amazing. He wants to know why she molested him. She takes him dancing and drinking instead, a la a honky tonk. He imagines, as he was in the car, that there's a romanticism to it, that he's romanticizing the encounter in his head. Because he even says, well, I rationalize why you would beat me and set me on fire to send a message to my mom and why you would do this. But I really can't reconcile why you would molest me. And he won't even call it that term. So that is a dead giveaway for his mental state. They then exchange shots and daddy stories because she says, I met your dad. He seems nice. And that, um, or Tom says that he's not his real dad, which is interesting because he raised him from the age of four. And as much as my real dad is not my real dad, I never, I mean, I've not ever not called him daddy because he raised me and that's his title. (laughs) Doesn't matter what the DNA says. That's my daddy for (laughs) greater or worse. Uh, That's what what I got. Then she says her father died. And then she met this or her mom met this man named Elliot. She took her down to or he took her down to the courthouse. They were going to be an official family. And a year later, he left. So she uh, really doesn't have any faith in the whole familial unit thing. And then he asks about her mom. She says, I shot her ashes into space for $12,000. Then Tom mistakes this for a date and kisses her. He brings her onto the dance floor or she brings him onto the dance floor. It's all very sweet until (laughs) she breaks the spell and says that she molested him because she wanted him to get pregnant. She wanted to see if he could get pregnant. And then she walks away, letting the illusion finally break for him. And he gets back in the car. And then there's this song that's playing that is rather awesome as they drive up to a property where the most burly guy I've ever seen in my life with a rifle (laughs) writes down the word situation like it required every ounce of his brain cells like okay so there's a there's a yeah yeah, yes right there okay 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 let me see that I I I I I I I the situation is a person who has stumbled upon the property and the barn and apparently he saw what he shouldn't because she has taken to him and he's like i didn't see nothing man i don't know what you're talking about I'm thinking it's about to be some weapons up in here. That is not what we saw. 
and the man that is holding the other person who stumbled onto the property says well we can hold him here until tomorrow because it won't matter but she says stone him tom then makes to follow meg like the puppy he is the lost puppy and she says look bruh you needed a ride i was going in that direction so i said sure tag along but um if you want to know what to do why don't you have this stone here and make yourself useful <laughs> can no one gag the man who keeps screaming for his life or do they enjoy the fact that he is screaming for his life because he is making so much noise begging sir is not gonna happen like take a look around you might as well just start working on the prayers that night tom is keeping an eye on the room magazine because she has been in there for quite some time when several others come out of the room a black woman with a whole bunch of tats and dreads walks up in a way that i was like i thought it was like a straight shot you did not need to do a full 90 degree in his direction to write down did you come in with meg because she is going to change everything she is being guided meg that is by some apropos disco to the miracle squatters camp and looks at the bridge that's what she wanted to see when she got there and runs into no one other than matt ah! he's like oh my god you speaking you out of the gr let me come talk to you and catch up how you doing what you doing around here <laughs> But it does not take long for uh, her truth to betray her lies because she thinks that the people of Jordan have been spared their pain uh, because of that bridge. And he's like, well, I'm starting to believe that you're full of shit. And then she looks at him for a long minute and then she says, what are you waiting for? And he's like, um, what do you mean? she says what are you waiting for you and the squatters out here you clearly want jordan you want it for yourself because he comes over immediately complaining about the rules of jordan as if he really like matt believes he was one of the fucking departed that lived in jordan and was spared like oh fucking hate matt <laughs> and the way he walks over like they have their rules like get the fuck out of here matt yeah of course they had the, they live there and then you have people like you showing the fuck up talking about miracles i don't even damn if your wife's <laughs> fucking shit is a miracle oh you just think you fucking special and that's where she figures like you trying to make your next cathedral in jordan matt and i see it and that's fine i wouldn't lie to a priest but a priest is straight up lying to himself about what he wants and she says you want me to tell you and he's like yeah why don't you tell me what i'm waiting for she says you've been waiting for me shit motherfucker ass tits cunt cock motherfucker shit ass tits motherfucker shit come on later on tom wakes investigates the barn now i know this is all tying because the, the way each character ties into Jordan, like the fact that Meg has a tie here. It's such a, uh, oh, 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 I was just doing another 
the Watchmen podcast and I kept saying it like over and over because I thought it was a cool word. A trans-dimensional miracle <laughs> in which all these people would know each other or be touched by each other in some way or form. And so I knew that Evie was connected to Meg and for some reason I still did not think it would be Evie and her friends. I knew they weren't departed. I just for some reason I didn't think oh my god they're, they're literally the ones that are being protected because they're the children. They're children. This is new. This is a game changer. Especially if you have the children leading the march. The children of the town of Jordan. Oh yeah. She planned this shit out good. He finds the trailer has to take a axe to get it open. And Evie is the one standing right there. And he says, who are you? And she write down, does it matter? And that's how we end the episode. I cannot wait to get to the next episode. I am so glad that I'm ending this this week. Because this finale is going to be off the chain. If you want to send feedback for a said finale, you can send that to blackgirlcouch at gmail.com. You can send it via audio or you can send it via email. You can find this podcast, Black Girl Couch Reviews, on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else good podcasts can be found. My social medias will be below. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and if you have time, run over to iTunes, leave a review, and rate the podcast. Until the next time, peace, hair grease, and Black Girl Magic.